Matthew chapter 12. So for the longest, like from the beginning, the heart of Cross Life has always, it's never been to be the biggest church or the best church in town. That's not what we ever desired for Cross Life. For Cross Life, we desired simply that whenever we gather, we gather genuinely. That we as a, a group of believers who love the Lord, love the Word, and want to do life alongside one another in a simplistic way, that that would be enough. And so there are tons of great churches all in our area, in our region. All doing churches, they've been called to do church. I say all that because one of the things from Crosslight from the very beginning we found there, we started meeting and and in living rooms and the back porches and backyards, it always felt like a family reunion whenever we came together. Like I was literally looking forward to Sunday mornings because I'm like, oh, it's not, oh, we're going to see these people tomorrow or I got to see these people tomorrow. It was, oh, I want to see Trent tomorrow. Like in a busy week, like I get to see Trent. I get to see Paul. I get to worship with the beards. Like it's like this, fa it's family coming together. And that's just kind of how it's always felt from the beginning, at least for, for me. And that's kind of what we wanted it to be. Um, that was kind of at the heart is if we look at scripture, and that's what we're going to be doing today. The church is a family. It is a family of God, but not just family with one another, but family with Christ, family with God the Father. And so if we've been moving through chapter 12, and we have, and you flip, and we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 12, chapter 12 has been pretty challenging. Like it's had some hard things for us to look at and consider. And now we're going to get here to the end of chapter 12. And at the end of chapter 12, for me, it's like sitting around a campfire. Like we got to do that a little bit last night. There's the dark and there's the cold. And then there's this campfire in the middle of this darkness and you stand next to it and you're just warmed by it. So I hope that that's what it is for us today. There is an incredibly powerful, wonderful, comforting, unbelievable truth in scripture that I want us to look at. Okay, but let's, let's journey back through 12 real quick. So go to 12.1, and I'm not going to read passages. I'm just going to kind of show you our kind of our preaching sermon that's built us up to this because 12's taken us on a journey. And in verses 12, 1 through 8, we looked at how Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath and what the Sabbath is and how we should be Sabbathing more, how we should rest. And I still struggle with it, and I'm sure you do too, because we're like geared the wrong way. Yesterday, Chas and I got up. We both slept in, which is like weird for, for me to sleep in, but then for us to both sleep in a little bit. And then we, we got coffee and I took it to her and she goes, she's drinking her coffee and she was actually reading on the Kindle for a while. And she goes, oh, I know I should get up and like, I got to get things going. Like I got to swap out laundry. I could probably do this. And I'm just, I was like, you know, there's something wrong with us, Chas. <laughs> she's like, what do you mean? I was like, I think it's okay for us to not get up and do immediately. So we got up and we went yard selling and it was great and it was wonderful and entirely too long. Um, but we're, we looked at the Sabbath and, and what the Sabbath is and why it's good for God's people, how it defines God's people. Then we, we, uh, we move on and we looked at him being God's chosen servant down in 15 through 21. And in 15 through 21, we looked at how he is the suffering servant that all of the Old Testament prophesied about him. What does that mean for us? It means that God is faithful and he fulfills all that he will accomplish. And then verses 22 through, um, lost, I'm so sorry, 32. We talked about what the true unforgivable sin is, and that is blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. That's denying.
denying the working of God in others' lives and in our lives. And so if we reject God, that is unforgivable. And then we went to a tree being known by its fruit. And this one was probably pretty hard for most of us. And we didn't talk the rest of that day, but we've kind of normalized because this is the one where we are given, we're told we're going to give an account for every careless word that we speak. And that's a hard passage also. Then we moved into the sign of Jonah and how an unfor I don't like this, but an unbelieving people, an unbelieving generation, they want to sign. He says, but my sign is that I will die and I will be resurrected and that will be enough for those who believe. And then we go on, the return of the unclean spirit. That's where we were last week and how we can't just seek to reform our lives and just make them better and have a self-improvement plan, but we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's an active pursuit of God to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there are passages that, I don't know about you, but for me, studying and moving through them, they're pretty convicting. And they're pretty centralizing back on, I need a Savior. I need God. And He does in a work that is incredible on my behalf. And that gets us to verse 46 through 50. And to me, this is just an amazing truth that if we're not careful, we just skip over it. And I don't want us to skip over it today, especially in light of we are brothers and sisters in Christ who've gathered together to worship our God. And how fitting that God in His sovereignty would line up the passages to be a part of our family meal today. So it's a cheesy little name, a family meal, but that's what it is. We eat together, we love one another, we talk with one another, we devote to one another. And so here's what our passage says. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so that's our, our passage today. That's what we're going to look at. And that's what we're going to live in. And that's what we're going to love to be in today. And what I hope is not this. I don't hope that at the end of it that we, we go, Oh, family of God, that's who I am. That's cool. That's great. But I, I hope by the end really reckoning with this, there is kind of a humbling that also begins to take place that in our great joy, there's a great humbling and we realize all the work that he's done. I'm convinced that we really do not get the gospel fully enough. It's not that the gospel is not vast enough. It's that we think too little of it. We do not understand and we cannot, but we really do not understand fully what he has done. And so we're going to get warmed by the fire of these passages, I hope. All right, so what is the main thrust of this passage? Our heart is always, what does it actually clearly say? The main thrust of this passage is that Jesus is redefining what his family really is, and it says that all who believe belong to his family. All who believe belong to his family. So those who do the Father's will, like if we're desired to do the Father's will, we're not merely followers, but we are family also. And that's where it gets a little radical for us. This is, Jesus is preaching something that now you're probably like, oh, I know, part of the family of God. And Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. We can throw the right arm and the left arm. Like, we know the song so much, we know the truth so much, that I, maybe it's kind of lost, like, its impact. You and I are not mere followers, but he's not ashamed to call you brother and sister, and son and daughter, and mother and father. You know who you were, right? You know who we would be without Christ. 
We know that even though we desire to follow Christ, we know how our heart is bent and how we're tempted to pull away. And yet he says, you are my brother. You are my child. You know, how great and mysterious is the fullness of the gospel that we who were hostile are now called heirs with Christ. Like that's what this says. That's what we're going to look at. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is this. We have to talk about verse 47. Look at verse 47 in your Bible. Do you have a verse 47 in your Bible? You do not have a verse 47. Some translations already have it in there. But if you're not careful, it goes, for, well, you're, we're not careful enough. We're like, oh, 46 through 50. And it goes 46, 48, 49, 50. They know how to number. They know how to count. This is like one of those little Easter eggs for you, okay? And this happens in some of the, some of the passages throughout the Bible. Here's why verse 47 is not there. It's not an all, so the, I like the ESV translation a lot. I grew up on the King James Version. I can probably quote most of the scripture in the King James Version. I love the King James Version. Nobody talks like the King, King James Version anymore, but I still like it. I also like the New American Standard. I like the NIV. I really like the ESV because of their translation style. And their translation style is, you can read about it, they call it the optimal translation style. Sounds pretty cool to be the optimal one. Not just the literal, not the figurative, but, or, but it's, it's the optimal. And what they try to do is they try to be as accurate to the, to the manuscripts as they possibly can. Um, a word-for-word -word translation until the point to where it's not understandable. And then they bring in, okay, here's how we would say it today as accurately as possible. So they've got this good tension. That's why I like the ESV. So much so that... The manuscripts that they use for their translation that they rely upon, verse 47 is not in all of them. However, they do believe that verse 47 was in the original translation, which is why it's in your footnotes very most likely. So if you're using the Bible app, you'll see like three little, like a little um, speech bubble and then three dots. You click in, it'll show you verse 47. If you look down in your ESV at the footnotes, whether at the end of the chapter or bottom of the page, you'll probably see verse 47 there. They believe enough that it was in the original but to honor the manuscripts that they've primarily been using, they're just sticking with that. Okay, so there is a fancy term for all of you note takers, and I practice it. It's homi teluton. Hom I'm sorry, no, homio teluton. That's why verse 47 is not there. It's homio teluton. I had to do a pronunciation guide, verse by verse, and but homio teluton. It's a fancy word for this. That in transcribing from this manuscript to this manuscript, sometimes because of the close repetition of the final phrases, like in verse 46 and verse 47, they both end with to speak. They're both about mother and brother seeking to talk to him. Because of that repetition, then as they're transcribing going from here to here, from here to here, it sounded so similar that it accidentally got overlooked. Um, verse 47, though, and you're going to see it if we, because I'm going to give it to you. But basically, it's an unintentional oversight because words, clauses, or sentences are so similar. Um, and so that's why verse 47 is not there. It's not because it's not worthy. It's not because it's not the word of God. It's because they're really trying to, the, the translators are trying to hold to their traditions as much as possible. Um, okay, so verse 47 would say this. If it's in your Bible, it's going to say something just like this. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. And then verse 48 is, 
Basically, what does it say? He said to the man who asked him, but he, yeah, he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother, who are my brothers. The reason I'm spending time pointing this out is that verse changes nothing about the scope of the passage. That's what I want you to have peace with. Okay. So, there's your little trivia note. If you're ever on Jeopardy, and they happen to ask, why is verse 47 not reflected in chapter 12 of most Bible translations, then you would say, oh, it's because homeo toluton. And I'm sorry, what is because of homeo toluton? And then you will get it. All right. Now, let's, let's listen to Mark 3. Why am I giving you Mark 3? Because I just want you to, this is, as we've been moving through Matthew, then you could actually go to Mark and see a lot of the parallel passages. You can go to Luke and see some parallel passages. But I just want, this is a great one that's short, it's brief, that I just want you to see, hey, the things that we're preaching and teaching about here are in the other Gospels. John is the most unique Gospel. Uh, John has unique miracles, unique sayings. What is in John, you're not necessarily going to find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But what you find in Matthew, you're probably going to find variations or renditions in Mark and Luke. And what's in Luke is going to be Matthew. That's why they're called the Synoptic Gospels. They sync up. Okay? So, for example, the passage that we're in Matthew, listen to it in Mark chapter 3, written by different apostle, different, different writing at a different time in a different place. And here's what he records. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who stood around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So, y'all, what is the clear teaching throughout Scripture, in, whether we look in Matthew or Mark, and it's this, Matthew 12, 50. If you don't have this one underlined or you haven't spent time in this one, then this is a verse that's, that, that just should capture us. And it says this, Matthew 12, 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And we're going to be dwelling on this. One of the big questions that people always seek for is, what's the will of God for my life? Like, what does He want for me? He wants you to be saved. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to seek Him and be secure, holy in Him. Like, it's the Christian life. Yeah, but what about this job? What about like this, this venture in my life? Am I supposed to do it? I just want to do the will of God. Well, are you saved? Are you being sanctified? Which means are you growing in your faith more and more to be like Him? Are you seeking Him and all of your security found in Him? Then there's a whole lot of freedom in the decisions that we have. Sometimes, yes, He wants you to take that step. But Chas and I have found in our lives that Whenever you delight fully in Him, sometimes He just wants you to walk in the freedom of Him. And there's not a right or a wrong as long as you are saved and sanctified and seeking and all of your security being in Him. As we sit here today, if your faith is in Him and in Him alone, you are in the will of the Father. It is the will of the Father that none should perish, but all should reach repentance and be saved. So, this is for you and for me as brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, as born-again believers, however we want to phrase it from whatever our, our background is, whoever does the will of, the Father, of my Father in heaven is my Jesus' brother and sister and mother. Now let's walk through the passage, okay? 
Everybody good? All right, so that's where we're going. We're going to dwell on it at the end with a lot of other passages for what the gospel fulfills for us. Matthew 12, 46. Let's just do a quick breakdown. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, this is important. We've got to look at the brothers. They stood outside asking to speak to him. Do you all know why the brothers is such a big deal? Like Jesus had brothers. He had real brothers. And you might not realize why this is such a big deal, but I did teach. Uh, so I'm in my 18th year of education. Um, seven years as an administrator, 11 years I taught. Um, two years up here at Southside, and then for nine years before that where I got my starting was I taught in a Catholic school um, as a Baptist, and it was wonderful. Like, there's a, like there were great conversations where students come in, would come in, they're like, you're, you're a Baptist, right? Like, and I was like, yeah, you're a Catholic? Yeah, can we ask a question? I was like, sure, only if I get to ask also. And I'd cleared all of this with my principal also. Um, he loved that they had a safe place where they could ask questions and not be ridiculed or um, demeaned, but someone would have an actual conversation and challenge them. And I loved that I had the freedom to pour into these students and get down to some of the real doctrine um, of, what, of why we do what we do. And then I'm just going to tell you, in the course of that journey, working at that Catholic school, you know, I met so many Catholics who really, genuinely, truly loved God, and they knew that they loved God because Jesus Christ died on the cross for them. And I also was a youth pastor at a Baptist church, and on the video ministry, and been an elder in another Baptist church. And I can tell you, I've walked alongside a lot of Baptists who really do not understand that they love God because He loved them first by sending Jesus Christ to die on a cross. So in my, in my nine years there, though, I came, up, I came across some doctrines, though, that really kind of just confused me. And one of them is the perpetual virginity of Mary. So Catholics believe that Mary was once and always a virgin, that there was a perpetual virginity. And so Jesus was of the Holy Spirit, but there were no other brothers and sisters that came from Mary. Whenever you ask them, like, how's this all reconcile? And you can look all this up. It comes down to a couple of things. One, Joseph had other kids from another marriage before he married Mary. Yeah, before he married Mary. Uh, another one is that these are actually family cousins who were so much like brothers and sisters that they're identified as brothers and sisters. But the clear and the plain, and there's, by the way, no scriptural support for either one of those those beliefs. It's just a dogma that is taught by their church. It's believed in by their church. And so whenever they get to a passage like this, how do they translate it? And, and then why does it matter is what I'm going to get to. Why am I sharing this with you? Whenever they get to one like this, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like Drew and I get to be so close, Drew Tefertiller, and we're like brothers, you know. I've told you I had a, a friend, Bobby Jackson, who was like a brother to me in college. And I'd call him like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just hanging out on the couch, um, watching some satellite and chilling. And I'm like, you don't have satellite. He goes, I know, but you do. I kind of broke in. So say whatever you get here, bud. And a uh, great friend. Um, he unfortunately uh, was killed. He was uh, drive, riding his bike to a worship meeting uh, while I was still in college, I guess my junior year. And uh, an I was one to say a drug driver, but it wasn't. He was under the influence of drugs. Uh, came barreling up behind his car, hit the back wheel of the bike, uh, flipped Bobby off, and died instantly. So that was the death of a friend. That was the death of a brother. 
And so that's one of those that, that you know, still hard for me. You ask the questions of why. Because you look at someone who loves the Lord in the prime of their life, going to do ministry to lead others in worship, such as the mystery of this life that we don't understand. Therefore, that word brothers can be meant and understood that way, but a plain reading of Scripture does not lead us to the perpetual virginity of Mary. We have to like find some way, and, and they, they, they hold to that dogma. You can look into it a whole lot more. We can talk more. But, but look at Matthew, Matthew 12, 13, 55. Just so you know, I'm not taking this one verse. And again, there's a reason I'm showing you this, but Matthew 13, 55 through 56, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And then watch this. And are not his brothers, James and Joseph, and Simon and Judas, James, who is ultimately going to write the book of James. And look at this. And not, not I'm sorry, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things, or this understanding in some translations? If you were to look at Matthew 1, 24 through 25, it says, when Jesus, I'm sorry, when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not. We know the biblical language. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And in Luke 2, 7, it says this, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So all of this matters because of this. I just want you to understand that he took on flesh and was one like us. And he had a family unit, much like us. These are real flesh and blood brothers and sisters. And so whenever Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters, you can imagine like how that must feel also. But you also have to understand that he's, I'm one of seven kids, keep that in mind. And so for me to look left and right, literally, and be able to see brothers and sisters on either side of me, like that means I'm part of something in this world. and part of something bigger than me. They really are. Even though we are scattered and even though I don't see them enough, no one talks about, messes with, or does anything to my family because these are my real life brothers and sisters. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a spiritual family, but, but this is blood. And Jesus does challenge us in his teaching with blood that, that if we're really going to truly follow him, we must be willing to leave all of this behind. Therefore, the one who calls us to make such a sacrifice and commitment to him is the very one who does the exact same thing. He grew up with brothers and sisters, his real family, flesh and blood, and they're outside and they ask to see him, which leads us to 48 through 49. It goes a whole lot quicker from here. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Two clarifications. Number one, he does know who his mother and brothers are. Just so it's not like a, a moment where he goes, Who are you talking about? Oh, he knows who they are. Clarification number two. It's this. He is not disregarding his family. He is regarding a greater family than what's waiting for him right there. He knows who they are. And he's not trying to be disrespectful. He can't. He's a holy God. He's not trying to disregard them. He's regarding something so much greater. He's regarding you and me and all who would call upon his name. This is so much bigger. 
And but if you could imagine being in that moment, we're like, we're very familiar with this. But if you could imagine like all the crowds pressing around and he knows who you are, like his disciples. And he hears and you're like, you're watching this scene. You and I were watching this scene and he's over there and someone comes and says, your mother and brother, they're outside. They want to talk to you. And then he looks and he goes, this, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters because I'm one with them and they're one with me. If you could imagine hearing that in that moment, that is a radical teaching at that time. He's completely taken this family unit that God gave in the very beginning, and he says, you're looking at only this, and I'm looking at this. This is what I've come to do, to bring all who believe in me into my family. This is radical. We're so far past it that we're like, I know, Ricky, I know. The horse, and it's been beaten to death, and we get it. I don't think we have. I'm not convinced enough we've really gotten it. Matthew 12, 50, this says this. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Y'all, we are not only disciples. The gospel has done something greater and deeper. Not mere followers, but family. And I'm going to test that here in a second and see how we feel about this. And all of the rest of Scripture is going to attest to this. We're going to look at it. But y'all, we're, we're known by our relationships. That's how it works. Like, people know who my family are because of me. People know me because of my family. Did you ever hear, oh, you're, well, you wouldn't hear it this way unless your dad's name is Rick, but did you ever hear this growing up? Oh, you're Rick's boy, huh? You're Rick's son. I've actually met people whenever I started working at Union um, because one of seven kids, some of my brothers went through this school whenever they were little, and my dad was a school board president. He was on the booster club. So walking through these halls and meeting people, I'd shake their hand, and I'm like, Ricky Massengale, it's nice to meet you. And they're like, oh, you were so much younger than I thought you were going to be. I was like, I age really, really well because they knew my dad. And by extension, no, my dad, they, they know or think they know some of me or a little bit of me or most of me. But I was always known growing up as Angie or Lindy's little brother. And we know one another and we identify with one another because of relationships that we have and because of their families. Who we belong to matters, in other words. And who we are related to, it does matter. It does not always rightly define us in this world. Some of us are like don't know me by my brother and sister. I'm nothing like them, but that's just a truth. And so here's what I want you to hear. The holy God has seen the corruption and the wickedness of man. And he has condescended to us, not only to save us, but to fully love and so fully forgive and so fully justify and so fully redeem and so fully glorify that he would call us brother or sister or mother. Like that's what that love of God means. Put it this way, so fully reconciled are we to God that we are called children of God, that we are called brothers and sisters. So therefore, there is this great charge. Here's the great charge. An onlooking world associates us with Christ. He looks at us, or I'm sorry, looks at us, they know we are associated with Christ, they know us by relation. They might not understand the relationship at the level that you and I do, but they also understand that we are associated with Him, and that bears a great weight for how you and I will walk out of this place today. It bears a great weight with what we will post on social media, with what we will not post, with what we will say to one another, with what we will not say, with how we drive through town. We bear a great weight to, to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. So here's the experiment. 
These are rhetorical, but you just check your heart with what comes up here. Who is your heavenly Father? God. Who then is your brother? And if you're like me, you kind of don't want to say Jesus. You kind of want to say everyone around me, right? Pain and I were brothers, right? We're, 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 we don't want to do that because how could someone like the king be a brother to me? Because we actually know who we are. Even though scripture says it's Jesus, we don't want to say Jesus. It kind of seems presumptuous. It kind of seems arrogant and maybe sacrilegious or blasphemous to say, whenever I ask a question, who is your brother? And you go, Jesus. Like there's just this weight that comes with it. But church, who is your brother? Jesus is your brother. He said it. I didn't. I'm not stretching scripture here. Whoever does the will of the Father is therefore Jesus' brother or sister or mother. He's radically redefining what it means to be a part of the family of God. And I don't think the gospel is so hard to believe because it has too many holes or gaps in it. It's because it's too good to be true. And because it's too good to be true, we doubt the fullness of the gospel. That's what I want you to hear. The goodness of the gospel is more radical and deeper and wider than anything that we've probably wanted to reckon with because we start to swim in those depths and we feel like we've got something wrong. And what we've got absolutely right in our heart is that we are brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters of the king who is our brother. Like that's incredibly challenging for my heart. And we might say, oh, it's because of my humility. I can't believe he would be my brother. No, it's because of our pride. We're rooted so much in who we are and who we think we can establish that we put so much in our personal identity that we forgot that the gospel says, I don't care who you are. If you come to me and you die for me and you live for me, you are my brother. And there is a great release in that. The gospel is not so hard to believe because it's too vast. It's because we think of it way too little. It is too good to be true. How could we ask ourselves the eternal God and King, the spotless lamb, the suffering servant, all of these things through chapter 12, and then an Alpha and Omega, how can he regard you in such a way? It's because Romans 11.33, it just says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Like his love moved him to a depth that we cannot search out and that we cannot figure out. But you sit here today as such a recipient of grace that he is proud to call you brother and sister and daughter and mother. That's the depth of his redemption. So what's really happening here is this. Jesus is revealing an eternal truth. And he has to reveal it because we wouldn't stumble into this one. Maybe the mystery of the Trinity is easier for us to grasp at right now than this because we know who we are. Can't believe that he, a holy God, would call me a brother. But here's an eternal truth that Scripture reveals to us over and over again. And here it is. His holy family, y'all, transcends bloodlines. And it includes everyone who believes. He is, in this passage, redefining the relationships on an eternal and fundamental scale. He was saving us fully to Himself so that we may be co-heirs with Him for all of eternity. We think too little of the gospel when an inheritance of heaven has been so clearly and plainly laid before us. 
C.S. Lewis says it's not that we're, hard, that we're, we're uh, well, let me back up. C.S. Lewis uses the illustration, and he says, we're like children outside playing with mud pies when a full inheritance and a full banqueting meal is inside waiting for us, and we'd rather play with these mud pies and eat them. It's not that we're hard to satisfy, it's that we're too easily satisfied with the things of this world. I'm not trying to puff you up and make you anything other than what Scripture says, except this, that when He died on the cross, it was fully redeeming, fully forgiving, fully regenerating, fully atoning, fully for you, fully for me, for all the fullness of eternity. And He says, you are my brother. I want to show you this. We're actually going to start in John. And we're going to go through several passages building on this truth. And then we will pray and we will worship Him. Just going to, we're going to look at, it's going to be like our walk through the New Testament to look at some of these passages. John 1, 12 through 13. What I want you to see in these passages is that we are prone to an identity crisis. We're prone to forget who we truly are and believe what we want to be about who we are. So I hope these passages reaffirm to you over and over again that we can't trust our feelings. We must rest in the faith and the fullness of what He's done. And it, so that's what I, I hope you're just encouraged in the campfire of these passages. Here we go. John 1, 12 through 13 says this. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You know what we see there? To all, like, great word, everyone, all who did believe Him, who believed in Him, I'm sorry, who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it, but He gave us the right to be born again of God because we received Him and believed in His name. Go ahead and start flipping to the right. You're going to get to John 19, 26. You're going to kind of see if, uh, if 1250 is like one bookend, and then we're reading through all these chapters. Here's the other bookend of this passage. And in that illustration, you have to have two bookends. Like if you're one of these who puts a bookend here and then it just goes up to the wall, then that doesn't work for you. I realize that. But bookends right here. John 19, 26. Jesus upon the cross. And he's hanging there. And they call out to him. He says, when Jesus saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved, that would be John. When he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he actually is going to tell John, Behold your mother. He's redefining these relationships. Go to Romans 8. We're going to be in the epistles for just a little bit, in the letters. Look at Romans 8, 11 through 16. And he touched on this last week, and it was so fitting as a transition to where we're going. Romans 8, 11 through 16 says this. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the Holy Spirit, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I'm sorry, you will live. Watch this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. Do you know what the plain and clear teaching of Scripture throughout the ages is? This, that the Spirit, we have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, and by whom we get to cry, Abba, Father. Like He did a work in us. Sometimes our kids will still wake up in the middle of the night. And you know, in the mystery of the middle of the night, there's so many things that could be going through our heads. And they'll cry. They won't cry out now, but, but they would cry. They would cry out, and it's, Mom, Dad. They never said Mother, Father. You know, it's never rolled off the tongue in the darkness, but because they knew we were there, and they knew we would come. Now if they wake up in the middle of the night, and it's something going on, or something's on their mind, or they're hearing something, they, they know where to find us, and they come to us because they know that we will hear their voice. They know that we will attend to them. And so radical is the gospel that the Holy God of all of eternity says, you call me Abba Father, and I will hear you. 16 says, we are children of God, and if children, verse 17, then heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. Like, that's who we are. Look at Romans 8, 29 through 30. I want to give you some comforts. This one is often used to, as a point for, oh, look, predestination, it's right there. And this, that's, I don't think that that's the thrust of the passage whenever you read all of Romans 8. It's all about the security that we have. And yes, it has this doctrine, this mysterious doctrine in there that we've got to wrestle with. But I think the point is this. Watch Romans 8, 29 through 30. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son as co-heirs. In order that he might be the, what, firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The work that he began in you, he will see it through to completion. Verse 30, I look at that, and all the work that God begins, he will finish it. Why? Because we will be conformed to the image of his son. Why? Because he is the firstborn of many brothers. While you're flipping to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to go a little bit quicker through these. I just want you to see the languages here through and through, overall and all in all. But as you're flipping to Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, I do think that, and I do, I do not want this, but you know, I think that earlier generations kind of understood the brother ideology a little bit better. But, you know, if Mark and I meet for lunch, I don't usually walk in and go, Oh, Brother Mark, how are you? No one calls me Brother Ricky. I don't want you to call me Brother Ricky because it sounds weird. But I do look back at Brother Robert. I do look back at Brother Bill, these huge um, influencers of my faith and just men of God. Brother Robert, Brother Bill. And if you said, what's, what's their first name? I'd say Brother. 
Like, it's just, it's part of who they were. We've kind of lost that now. But such is the, that's, I think that's how they were trying to cling to that. Look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Watch this. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Ephesians 5.1 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. I'm in Galatians now. If you're going to Ephesians 5, I'm already in Galatians. Don't worry, you just keep flipping to the right. Galatians 3.26-29 Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Listen to what God's Word says. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither, I'm sorry, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You are daughters and brothers and sisters and mothers with Jesus, with God. Like He has done this amazing, incredible thing. Why don't we remember this? We're so focused on ourselves. We're so focused on this world. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this. It's like one page turn probably. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus didn't just have us one-off verse over here. Watch this in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. First Timothy 5. How then do we live with one another? This is all about the family of God. I just want to show you the radical reimagining. First Timothy 5, 1 through 2. And I did skip over some in my notes, just so you know. Man, what if we what if we lived in community like this? In 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, verses 1 and 2. Do not, Paul's writing to Timothy, a young man, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, and younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You want to know what biblical community looks like? It looks like that. The Timothy, though he had the right as the elder of that church or the pastor of that church, empowered or um, given authority by Paul, he wasn't to rebuke an older man, but to encourage him as you would a father. He wasn't to lord it over younger men, but to treat them as brothers. He wasn't to, he was supposed to treat older women as mothers with all respect and gentleness, and he was supposed to respect younger women as his sisters in all purity. That's what the gospel does to our relationships. It doesn't look at, doesn't establish any authority that allows us to, to disregard the family of God. This is all part of his reimagining and repositioning of family, which leads us to Hebrews chapter 2. 
Our walkthrough of the New Testament's almost done on this. Hebrews 2 says, for it was in verses 10 and 11, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. <coughs> Go to Hebrews 12, 8. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Stay right there, stay right there. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Like, what if, like, that's what, he's not ashamed to call us brothers because he who sanctifies and those whom he sanctifies all have one source. Therefore, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 8. This is the one we don't like. If we're his sons, if we're co-heirs with Christ, then Hebrews 12, sorry, verses 7 through 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Why? So it tells us God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the whole point is, God so richly and deeply loves you as a son and daughter of who he is, that if you're walking in sin, if you are disobeying him, he will discipline you. Why? Because he actually loves you. We can move all throughout Proverbs. You know this. We just don't always hold to them. And we can see throughout Proverbs, which is the prag, I'm sorry, the practical approach to parenting, like a practical approach to all of life. Greed, jealousy, lust, marriage, parenting, like it's all there. And it tells us in Proverbs so clearly that if we love our son, we will discipline him. That if we love our son, we will not spare the rod. That we, it tells us all those things that there must be discipline. Because there needs to be that sort of love that looks out for the good of who they fully are. And now here I am in 1 John, the last one. 1 John chapter 3. I should put as a little caveat that to discipline your child doesn't always mean spankings. Also, just doesn't always mean time out. Right? It's each child uniquely, fearfully, wonderfully made. My children respond differently to different disciplines. One, I look at it and I go, really? That's it. We're good for like the year. The other one has a nature much like mine. This speaks too quickly, feels incredibly strongly. And so it's like a battle of the wheels until I realize that I'm fighting little me. And then I have to realize what I need to do. I've told him many times, buddy, I know who you are because I know who I am. This is what we have to work on. And then Kenley, I'm still figuring that one out. <laughs> First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. This is, this is the last one I want you to hear in this regard. And it's this. See what kind of love cross life. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. I love that verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God 
And so we are. We are. We just have to start to walk in the fullness of it. Our adversary, the devil, stalks around seeking one to devour, one to distract, one to deter, one to discourage us from all the promises of who we are. That's why you need verses like this. That we are not merely wanderers, we're not merely followers, we're not merely disciples, though we are, but we are His sons. We are co-heirs with Christ. And the King who sits on the throne has adopted us in and says, all the full inheritance of all that I have is also fully yours. Do you not think that a King like that cares about his brothers and sisters if you and I care so deeply about our earthly ones? So what do we do with all this? Now we rejoice. We're such a solemn people as Christians. We're like, yes, the king has died for me. He has made me fully his. I will be in heaven forever. And it's great. I am a son of God, a daughter of God. It's wonderful. I am exuberant with joy in this moment. Oh, for crying out loud, you are a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a co-heir with Christ. This is the fullness of the gospel. Oh, Colossians 1.21 says this, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He's now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Like, that's who we are. In order, do you know why He did it? So that He could present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Which leads me all the way to my prayer for you, and then we're going to rejoice in this. Because He took enemies and He made us sons. Made us his brother, made us his offspring and his heir. And he hears us when we cry out, Abba, Father. Therefore, my prayer is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. It says, for this reason, and I apply it to y'all. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, listen to this, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Y'all, an incredible eternal adoption has occurred because of the love of God for us. And you and I believers, we are scripturally, biblically, eternally brothers of Christ and sons of God. That's who we are. That is our identity. Let's pray. Lord, I, I need you to remind me of this. But Lord, I also need it to be that when you remind me, Lord, if you will just like put your hand over my mouth and tell me to, to shut up. Or because when I'm reminded of your truth, my spirit wants, like my, my flesh wants to rebel against that. Such an amazing love. How can that be? That you, my God, would die for me. And not only die for me and it be done, or to be fully done, fully adopted as your brother, as your co-heir. You, God the Father, my Father. Lord, help us to rejoice in the truths of what we see in Scripture. And Lord, I pray that you silence the voice of the enemy who wants to discourage and distract and destroy the joy that we have. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and help us to walk in the fullness of who you are. And we do praise all in your son's holy name. Amen.